So our reading will be taken from Luke chapter 7, verses 1 to 10. Luke chapter 7, verses 1 to 10. If you have access to a church Bible, you'll find that on page 1035. Luke chapter 7, verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There, a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was ill and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. This man deserves to have you do this, because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to him to say to him, Lord, don't, don't trouble yourself, for I don't deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with servants, so, sorry, soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. And that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. Pray for God's help as we, uh, as we think about um, that incident together. Uh, Father God, our prayer is that you would uh, help us uh, to see the significance, see the, uh, the relevance uh, to us uh, of uh, this episode in the life of Jesus and uh, why you have recorded it for us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So 6.30... Uh, tomorrow morning, uh, tucked downstairs, a group, uh, don't know how many, little group, big group, uh, in the first of those, the week of prayer gatherings, 15 of them spread through the week, um, uh, Monday through to Friday. Um, don't know what you think about that, how you feel about that. Perhaps uh, this morning you're, you're thinking to yourself, oh, should I go? Have I got any motivation? Could I possibly get up that early? Um, do I really want to get involved? Or maybe you're thinking, hmm, prayer. I'm not sure what I'll make about prayer at all. I really never thought through uh, my views about praying. Uh, what do I think of it? And maybe that's some of what you were thinking about last week. We, we, had, a, we had a vision Sunday. We set a vision uh, for the year ahead. Uh, and the last of that one-two-one vision uh, was to, to commit ourselves uh, to a time of prayer every day, uh, right through the year ahead. Uh, how are you doing? Where does prayer fit uh, in your thinking and experience? Well, 
in answer to, to some of those queries that we might have about prayer, funnily enough, this passage uh, in Luke uh, has lots to tell us, which is a funny thing, really, because it's not a passage about prayer. In fact, in these 10 verses, no prayer gets said. And yet I think that these verses um, can take us to some very clear understandings of the essentials uh, of praying. Uh, we're going to find three things uh, as we think about it together. Why we pray, how we ought to pray, and what happens when we do pray. Why, how, and what happens uh, when we pray. Uh, so first of those, uh, why should we pray? Uh, and the answer to this question is that, that we should pray as an expression of our dependence upon God. Uh, this is a time of year, isn't it, when um, uh, young people um, arrive, um, not only arrive at university, but also arrive uh, in a new appreciation of the usefulness of their parents. Uh, those two things kind of go together. Because um, suddenly, getting from A to B is not as easy as it used to be when the parent mobile was available um, day and night uh, at, a, at a moment's notice. Uh, suddenly, you've got to do it on your own. Uh, and suddenly, cupboards don't miraculously sort of produce breakfast cereal, and fridges aren't sort of filled with milk as if by magic it turns out that someone has to go and shop and buy them. Who would have thought it? Now, alongside this new appreciation of the usefulness of parents comes a steady growth towards independence. That's the way it goes as we grow up. Uh, we gradually increase at the level of uh, our fending for ourselves-ness. Uh, and that's right, and that's good, and that's proper. But you ever stop to think that in the spiritual plane, that couldn't be more different? That, that actually growth in the spiritual plane doesn't involve a steady stepward progression towards independence. Now, on the spiritual plane, steady progressive growth means increasing dependence upon God. In relation to, to God, the drive towards independence is not a good thing, it's a bad thing. It's not the way that God planned it. No, the push towards independence is our plan, and it was catastrophic. So, so right from the, the earliest moments in the garden, the, the move that Adam and Eve made towards saying to God, no, we don't need you. We don't need your rules, we'll, we'll create our own rules. No, we, we don't need your protection, we'll sort that out. We don't, we don't need your wisdom, we're going to rely on our own. And even though God told Adam and Eve that it wasn't so, that they would thrive if they followed his rules and ate from any tree in the garden except one, they wouldn't hear him. They thought they knew better. They thought that independence from him, going their way instead of his, would be the best. 
they didn't believe him, and we still don't believe him either. But God, in his mercy, has woven into our world all sorts of reminders that actually independence from his is not the way that we should have gone. And most of those reminders come in the form of things that push upon us our neediness. Stuff that we can't do, stuff that we can't solve. Illness is one of those. It's a reminder to us that the world's not as it should be uh, when we face problems we can't find a solution to, like serious illness and death. And that's why uh, the centurion in verse 2, is discovering exactly that. Discovering that he has a servant who is sick, a servant who he values, and a servant who is going to die. And the centurion there meets his limits. He's used to being a man in control of things, but here is something that he can't control. Here's something that he can't solve. He sees his incapacity. And in his need, he reaches out for help. That's what the world does to us again and again. We face broken relationships that we can't put right. Foolish habits that we're just unable to break. Violent conflicts that never seem to come to an end. A global pandemic that we can't get on top of. And all of those things and many, many, many more, what do they do? They drive us to pray. In a crisis, even the most staunch atheist may find themselves turning to prayer. Uh, these difficulties reveal our need, and that's why we pray. One writer uh, on the subject of prayer had this to say, as far as I can see, prayer has been ordained only for the helpless. Prayer and helplessness are inseparable. Only he who is helpless can truly pray. Now you notice that at the end. Only he who is helpless can truly pray. In other words, it's not just that helplessness drives us to prayer as a desperate thing. No, no. Actually, the, the, the right kind of prayer is an acknowledgement of helplessness. That needs to be the, the style of our prayer as well, and we'll come to that. Prayer says to God, I need you. I'm not working towards ever-growing independence from you. I need your rules, I need your protection, I need your wisdom. In other words, I recognize that I am a creature dependent upon you, my creator. That's the way that the world was designed to work. That's the way that I was designed to work. That's why we pray. And that's why in verse 3, the centurion in his need, when he heard of Jesus, sent some elders asking for Jesus to come and heal his servant. So first, why pray? Because of our need. And then second, how shall we pray? What, what kind of praying shall we do? What kind of prayers shall we bring to God in this week of prayer to come uh, and in the year that lies ahead of us? Well, again, our passage helps us. And it does so by presenting two alternative ways of praying. Really interesting. Um, see if you can spot those two alternative ways of praying um, as I read a, a little section in the middle. I'm going to read from verse 3. 
The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, this man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. It's really striking. Did did, did you spot it? Did, Did you see what I'm getting at? The elders in verse 5, come to Jesus and they bargain. They appeal on the basis of the centurion's merits. Jesus, this man deserves you to do this for him because he loves our nation and he's funded our building project. He's earned this. Do it for him, Jesus. Now, earlier on, I mentioned um, the, the, the value of the, the parent mobile, the parent taxi service. And in my extensive research on this particular subject uh, this past couple of hours, um, the average UK parent I have discovered, the average UK parent drives no less than 1,648 additional miles per year. Ferrying, ferrying, ferrying uh, their their darling children around. How about that? 1,648 additional miles in a year. If you funded that on the basis of standard black cab rates, uh, it would cost you over 12,500 pounds. Wow. And that is why Skoda have introduced a new parent taxi app that you can download. Did you know this? It's designed, this is the way that the parent uh, taxi app has been designed by Skoda. It's designed so that you can, you can record chores that your children do and they get converted to parent taxi miles. What a marvellous idea, isn't it? Can you see that? Um, Pathfinders, I'm really sorry. I'm a bad pastor at this point. What a terrible thing to put in front of your parents. Anyway, it's, it's going to get undone. Don't worry. Don't worry. We're not going to commend this. Um, but do you see that, that, that this is the way that so much of life works? This is the way we think, that we think this is how you do things. You do your stuff and you earn your reward. You know, if I do enough chores, I've, I've earned uh, the right to expect my parents to drive me around. It's the way that the world works so much of the time, isn't it? You you know, you perform, you get rewarded. You go to work, you get your salary. And we think that it must go that way with God. Of course God would operate the same way. I come to church. Of course God's got to look after me. I keep God's rules. Well, then he's obliged to keep me safe. I perform, he delivers. We're convinced that that must be the way it goes with God because we see it happening uh, in so much of our world. It's the default mode of the human heart. But if I can say this in, 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 a, in a gentle kind of way, it's completely balmy. 
I'll tell you why it's completely balmy. Because do you see who it puts in control? Do you see, if it's my performance that earns stuff from God, then I'm in control. He has to respond. He has to, to come up with the goods. See, with a parent taxi app, once a teenager has done their chores, they've earned the right to those parent miles, and the parent has to deliver. So the child actually takes control in that situation. That's the madness of religion. The religious person thinks that what they have done with their religious deeds and their religious performance forces God to behave in a particular way towards them. Now, if you begin to believe that you're forcing God to behave in a particular way towards them, one thing's absolutely clear. He's not God anymore. You've made yourself into God. Which, of course, is the default move of the human heart. It's what Adam and Eve did in the garden. You'll be like God. You'll take his place. You'll push him to one side. I've found a way to make him my servant by my religious performance. Of course, it doesn't work because it's mad. Now, if that's the first way of praying, the entirely mistaken, foolish, wrong way of praying, notice that there is another alternative in this passage, and it's the way the centurion approaches God, the way the centurion approaches Jesus. Because we see that, that when Jesus is not far from the house, I, I don't know, I guess he's probably at the end of the street. I guess the centurion maybe hears the noise of the crowd coming or sees the dust coming up from their feet as they begin to move along. And he spots them at the end of the street. And he thinks, oh no, Jesus is nearly here. No, 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 he mustn't come in. I'm not, I'm not worthy to have Jesus come into my house. I've got to stop this. So he gets some friends and he, and he sends them scuttling off down the road to, to catch Jesus at the end of the road and say, no, 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 don't come. Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That's why I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you. Do you see, completely different, no performance, no bargain, no, I did this, so you must do that for me. No, from the centurion, just an appeal to grace. Even though I am not worthy, even though I have no grounds to expect you, to deliver, would you do it anyway? Just on the basis that you are gracious and kind, would you do it? Now the direction of travel is right. Now the centurion understands that in the dispensing of gifts, in the, in the delivery of blessing, everything rests with God. Everything rests with him being gracious to us. See how this teaches us about prayer? First, why do we pray? We pray because we're dependent. We may have forgotten that. We may pretend that that's not true, but we are. We're creatures made by a God. And our every breath, our every thought, our every blessing, entirely dependent upon him. And how do we pray? We pray with humility, reliant on his grace. And then finally, what happens when we pray? 
What can we expect from this week of prayer, this, this year of commitment to prayer, if, if you are making this commitment to the year ahead? What can we expect from it? Well, I guess you might think from this account, um, if we sort of travel through to the way that the story ends, um, I guess you might expect, well, everything's going to get better. We're going to get just whatever we ask. Because that is the way that the story concludes. Verse 10, the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. So is that it? Is that the way that prayer works? We say a prayer, get back whatever we've asked for, guaranteed? That would be a scary thing. Prayed some mad prayers in your time? Prayed some things that a few years later you thought, whoa, Thank goodness God didn't do that. Now, again, it's the same idea, isn't it? If we thought that God just answered every prayer like that, well, again, that puts us in control. Turns us into God again. No, 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 we pray a prayer that always ends with, thy will be done, because we know that you know best, God, not me. So even as I'm asking for this, I'm saying this seems right to me, but I don't know what it is that you might really want. So I submit to you because you're God and not me. So actually what happens when we pray is something much, much more significant than just getting what we want. And we find it in verses 8 and 9. Um, let me read again from the middle of verse 7. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one go, and he goes, and that one come, and he comes. I said to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crown following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith, even in Israel. Something really big is happening here. Did, did, did you get that? There are many, many places um, in the accounts of Jesus' life where people are amazed at Jesus. It is very, very rare to find a place where Jesus is amazed at people. Usually he's amazed for a bad reason, actually. How slow you are to understand what I'm on about. But, but here is, is almost unique, a place where Jesus is amazed because... The person in front of him is doing something so brilliant. Why? What's the brilliant thing that the centurion is doing? It can't just be that he's making this request. It can't just be that he's asking for something and Jesus is impressed by his faith. It's got to be more than that. Because lots of people ask Jesus for things. Blind people ask Jesus for sight. Lepers ask for cleansing. We, we've just heard a few chapters earlier, if you flick back in Luke, of four men lowering a paralyzed man on a mat, uh, asking, in effect, for Jesus to, to heal the man's legs. Now, lots and lots of times. And Jesus is not amazed by them. Now, there's something else happening here. And it has to be, verse 8, it has to be the centurion's sense of who Jesus is. Uh, notice what Jesus says. Sorry, no, notice what the centurion says. The centurion says, I myself am a man under authority. He doesn't say I'm a man with authority. He says I'm a man under authority. 
The accent is on the upward chain of command. The centurion was somebody who was like a local commander, um, directly sort of reporting to the chain of command upwards and ultimately to the emperor of Rome himself. Uh, which meant that in Capernaum, when this centurion declared an order, he spoke with all of the authority of the Roman emperor. That's the way that the chain of command worked. And what the centurion is saying is that in Jesus, he sees the self-same thing. In Jesus, he sees that before him is God's representative, God's agent, one in whom the very authority of God himself has been placed. And because the centurion sees that, he therefore relates to Jesus properly. He sees that Jesus possesses both the authority and the power of God. He gets it. At root, when you and I pray, we are recognizing God to be God. By praying, we declare his rule. We acknowledge our dependence. We submit to his authority. We adore our God. In other words, we remember who we are and we remember who he is. We get the relationship right between the two of us. And everything snaps into place. In his book on prayer, Tim Keller likens this to a moment of reorientation. I, I don't know what that would be like. You know, you know those moments when uh, you're watching a film and uh, it's buffering and it's all horrible and blurry uh, and then suddenly the buffering finishes and snap, it's clear. It's, it's almost that moment. Prayer, uh, Tim Keller writes, can lead us to shake ourselves and say, why was I so scared? This can't hurt me if God is with me. It can also lead us to say, why was I so oblivious? How could I have justified this? Prayer brings perspective. It shows the big picture. It gets you out of the weeds. It reorientates you to where you really are. There is so, so much more to praying than getting our requests answered. Because in prayer, the big thing is not stuff that we get from God. No, in prayer, the big thing is that we get him. Uh, you remember in, um, in Ephesians, maybe, if you're familiar with, with that New Testament book, um, Paul writes to the Christians in Ephesus, and he, and he prays for them that they might grasp the full extent of God's love, the, the breadth, height, width, depth, length uh, of the love of God. Uh, and writing about that prayer... Um, in that really excellent book on prayer that Tim Keller has written, um, he writes this, a rich, vibrant, consoling, hard-won prayer life is the one good that makes it possible to receive all other kinds of goods rightly and beneficially. Paul does not see prayer as merely a way to get things from God, but as a way of a way to get more of God himself. See, that when we pray, it's not stuff that we're after, it's him. 
Prayer positions us rightly before him. It engages us rightly with him. We become who we truly are designed to be in prayer. It's that big. It's that important. And that's our ambition this coming week and this coming year, to pray and pray and pray again in order that we might come to position ourselves rightly before our God, just as the centurion positioned himself rightly before Jesus. So I'd love you uh, to, uh, to pluck out a few of these times of prayer this week, uh, to do the hard thing, uh, to get up early, to travel in, uh, to come and be a part of praying together as one of the many ways that I hope all of us in this coming year will say, uh, I am going to learn to pray more better, more fully, more richly uh, than I've ever done before. Because it's good for me. It's right before my God. Let me lead us uh, in a prayer now. Our Father God, uh, we, uh, we don't find praying easy. Uh, and in, us, in so many ways, uh, that is uh, because we don't find dependence upon you easy. Uh, we would much rather be busying ourselves with our own activities, uh, uh, doing stuff, uh, because in our heart of hearts, uh, we believe that that is how you get things done. That is a life well lived. Uh, and in all of that, we, we tug ourselves away from you. Uh, we imagine ourselves independent of you. And yet in your mercy, you remind us of our dependence. And you press upon us our need. And at our best, uh, we know that it is uh, right and proper. Uh, that as your creatures, as those that you have given life to, uh, we should come to you uh, in humble, dependent prayer. Uh, seeking your will, seeking your blessing, uh, seeking your strength. Uh, please, by your Holy Spirit, uh, would you stir us uh, to, be, uh, uh, to be people who pray, uh, to be a church that prays, uh, to be a church, therefore, that rightly uh, relates to you, uh, our gracious God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.